Good morning. I'll start the timer. We'll start recording. This morning we're in 1 Corinthians 7 again. And we're now beginning with verse 8, and we'll go through verse 16. And I entitled this Difficult Marriage Questions. And most in, most truly it can be said that this is difficult. I want to begin by saying this. Whatever categories we're able to describe here, and they're difficult, nothing in the Bible is here to put recrimination on people who have turned to the Lord, whatever you've been through. And so I um, ask that God would get every, give everyone grace to stand fast in the Lord, because our minds go to the past, but we want to know where we stand now, and we want to help as we go forward to make sure people uh, do things in ways that would be honoring to God, because there's a lot of difficulties and sorrows in the world. So um, we'll go to verse, before we read verse 7, of chapter 7, verses 8 through 9, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness, your, your mercy. We need help. We need wisdom. We need grace. And we need to pray for one another and pray for our loved ones and pray for the people around us because there are so many sorrows and troubles and families are under attack in so many different ways. We want our families and our relationships to bring honor to you. We ask you to help us in Jesus' name. Amen. So here, again, there was a letter that Paul's addressing questions they ask. We don't have the letter. The last time I preached on this, we covered verses 1 through 6, and I stated that there's a phrase in that verse 1, it's good for a man not to touch a woman, was their slogan. All of the scholars that I have uh, available agree that that was their slogan, not Paul's. And we saw last time that when you get that wrong, you end up with a lot of errors that happened in church history. Monasticism, uh, oaths of celibacy, and so on, and a hierarchy in which uh, the unmarried were somehow superior to the married and so on. I dealt with that, and that was fairly straightforward compared to some of the questions we have to deal with today. I want to warn you ahead of time, I'm going to cite scholars more than usual and show that where there was a pretty clear uh, consensus that it's good for a man not to touch a woman was their slogan. Some of the issues that will come up today, it's not so easy to arrive at consensus. So let me read verses 7 and 8, 1 Corinthians 7. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, I'm using the ESV, and literally the Greek says to burn. But I think the ESV has the right connotation here, to burn with passion, because uh, others have pointed out that uh, you better marry so you don't burn in hell. 
that is, uh, it's been stated that way, but I don't think that's Paul's point here because he's talking about self-control. Notice the, the word self-control. The word in the Greek is only used here in 1 Corinthians 9.25 in the New Testament. There in 9.25, it's about uh, the athlete or the one who competes in the games who exercises self-control or discipline in order to compete in the games. And that is probably similar connotation that it would have here. Previously, we stated that some, uh, as Paul himself, have a gift being single and celibate, and he is, Paul himself, well able and pleased to live that way. We also stated that doesn't make the single person superior to married people. We're not trying to create a hierarchy or to judge who's the better Christian. We're trying to uh, stand firm in the faith and in sanctification in whatever state we're in. And as we go forward, trusting God for grace. So self-control would mean discipline to not partake in the sins of the culture. We saw in chapter 6 that prostitution, temple prostitutes, immorality, the Greek word pornea, was so prevalent and available in Corinth that some people just took it for granted that's the way life is. There was this uh, temple of Aphrodite there and so on. And we've dealt with that. And Paul is saying the Christian cannot live that way. We need to have the discipline to live lives of self-control in the state that we're in. In marriage, that means fidelity to one's spouse. In singleness, it means fidelity to the Lord and abstaining from the sins that are out there trying to draw people in. And if that is not a gift that someone has, Paul did, they should marry. Now, I'm going to read some scholars, as I warned you ahead of time I'm going to do, but I think it's helpful. I did a lot, a lot of study over the last two or three weeks because these are indeed difficult passages. Dr. Gardner says this, Marriage is not simply a way out for a person without such control, but is actually the path of self-control when a person sets their mind on God's calling and pursues it. Marriage, says Gardner, is not here regarded as some less good option for a person who is not as spiritual as someone else. Rather, it is the right option for those who are called, hence the aorist imperative, let them marry. Marriage is not bad. God ordained marriage. And so we've already dealt with this. Claiming that those who are married are lesser Christians, as some in Rome have done in other groups, is false. That's not correct. What Paul is telling us, them, by extension us, the readers of the Bible, is that whatever state we're in, 
We want to live in that state by God's gift and God's grace in a way that honors God. Marriage, biblically done, honors God. Now, I have a statement that I wrote. This is from me, so you can judge it accordingly. There is, a dis there is discussion about whether those addressed were already practicing immorality. Fee gives reasons why some were likely already practicing immorality because 1 Corinthians 6 rebuked those going to the temple prostitutes. Continuing my statement, God gives grace for each Christian to live a godly life in our own situation, whatever that may be. We also must realize that people come to the Lord who had previously lived as pagans. God has grace and forgiveness, which implies the means to live sanctified lives now. Continuing my statement, the Corinthian problems included bringing their previous pagan ways of thinking and behaving into the church. We cannot do that. <clears throat> I will forthrightly say this. The worst thing that happens is paganizing the church so that pagans like it better. We don't need to paganize the church. The church is to be sanctified. And we need to stand as a people of faith living as God intended so that there is a clear difference between Christians and pagans. And that is utterly important. And Paul is saying that. One more scholar, Dr. Fee. Paul's response, along with that of Jesus in the Synoptic Gospels, has served as the basis for canon law in the church on the whole question of divorce and remarriage. But one must remember, says Fee, that the original intent of the present passage was not to establish canon law, but to address a specific situation in Corinth. The apparent rejection of the marriage bed by some believers on, parenthetically, probably, ascetic grounds. In any case, here especially the text needs to be heard in its own historical context before it is applied to the broader context at a later time. I will come back to that. That is probably the most difficult task that we can ever face. It's one that in the 50 years that I've been a Christian and a preacher, I've seen this continually discussed, debated, and uh, trying to come up with a Talmud that covers everything is impossible. So that means we need to embrace the principle, trust God for grace, and make godly decisions. Let's go to verses 10 and 11. To the, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. That's Paul's uh, statement that he 
received directly from the Lord. There's going to be another issue that comes up when he says, uh, not the Lord, but I. I'll get to that in a moment. I want to commend to you a sermon preached here last summer by Pastor Eric. He preached on July 17th, 2022, and he covered Matthew 5, 31, 32. And what Eric preached, I jotted down, I'm going to remember this one, God hates divorce, we need to also. It's a battle to be married, to stay married, and to live lives that would be an alternative, and the only alternative is for married couples that is a testimony to the world that we stay married and faithful to our spouses. Divorce was common in the Roman culture. By the way, Eric did cite some passages in 1 Corinthians 7 on July 17th last year. The, the Romans divorce, go for it. And it didn't matter. Just uh, I'll cite some stuff about that. I want to make a statement that I wrote in my own notes here. The first thing that stands out is the fact that the wife is mentioned first and that both the wife and the husband are given the same command. For the Jews, only the man could initiate divorce, and that for any reason. Jesus stood against that attitude. That's what Eric was talking about. So one of the things, as I've been reading this, that strikes me is all the hand-wringing and the stuff at the seminary about, well, we've got to, we've got to get rid of all this uh, uh, male dominance, and we got to change the pronouns, and we got to accommodate this and accommodate that. When we go back to the original material, which is for us as the Scripture, the Scripture stands for the value of each person, including the wife and the husband. What needs to get adjusted is when the church accommodates the pagan culture, not the Bible. And so this I see as something that would correct abuse of women because the wife is mentioned here first in showing that there's not uh, a way that you can say, well, a man can divorce a wife for any reason. As some of the Jews said, Jesus rebuked him for that. But the woman has no standing whatsoever. That's not what the Bible says. Matthew 5, 31, 32. I'll just read those. You can hear Eric's sermon on that yet. It's on our website. But it is also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, Jesus said, but I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except for on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That's a pretty famous saying. Eric preached about it. The point is that we're protecting everyone, protecting the integrity of marriage, protecting the wife, protecting the husband. None of this, none of this should imply that whatever's happened already, it means you're in a hopeless state and there's no forgiveness and so on. We have an understanding of forgiveness, redemption, and atonement for anyone who cries out to God. So I mentioned that the New Testament gives the dignity and status to women 
that the pagan culture did not. Now we see a distortion of that where in a pagan culture that we live in that can't even recognize male and female as valid categories. Okay, so there's a huge issue now, but it's not that the Bible caused it. The Bible protects people. Uh, Another commentary, Camp and Rosner, uh, a comment on divorce in the Roman culture. I found this pertinent. Quoting Camp and Rosner, in the Greco-Roman world, men and women could divorce their partners by enacting what has been called a divorce by separation. That is simply by telling their partner to leave or by leaving themselves. Divorce was very common, and probably most marriages ended before the death of a partner. Instone Brewer, citing others, observes that, quote, Greco-Roman marriage certificates were worded as though they expected the marriage to end in divorce, not death, unquote. Now, that brings back to mind some reading I did uh, in church when a very new Christian and I went to Bible college, I was reading the early church fathers. I'm trying to remember it was Tertullian or Justin Martyr, but this is going back to the early 70s. But one of them said this, rebuking the Romans. They longed for divorce as if it were the natural outcome of marriage. So that statement by one of the early church fathers would echo what these scholars say was common in the Greek and Roman Roman world, be done with it. Now, Fee says this, in a culture in which divorce became something of a norm, this text has understandably become a bone of considerable contention. Some find Paul and Jesus too harsh and try to find ways around the plain sense of the text. Others turn the text into law make divorce the worst of all sins in the church. Neither of these seems to be an appropriate response. And I say amen to that. Uh, this is, uh, can be a minefield, but we need to start out by affirming that God ordained marriage, that God does not say that those who are single are lesser Christians. Paul includes himself in the category. And by saying that God has grace for us where we are right now, whoever we are, God has grace. And we're not going to be harmed by seeking that grace in living lives that would be honoring to God. That will not harm us. It will do us a lot of good. And we don't know what exactly will happen in the future. Let's go to verses 12 and 13. If I go quickly enough, I might get to the applications. 1 Corinthians 7, 12 and 13. You'll see why I say that in a moment here. The different things that could be, uh, time could be spent on are many. 12 and 13, ESV, I'm citing. To the rest I say, I not the Lord. That in itself, that parentheses could spend a lot of time talking about that. Let's go on. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. 
if any woman has a husband who is a, an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. I'll start with just a quick statement, I not the Lord. That has also been commented upon. Many scholars think that that means he, Paul, did not have Matthew in his possession. We, you know, look at the timing of the writings. But I, Eric and I have said many times that Paul re, was taught by the Lord himself. We'll see that in First Corinthians 15. The Lord himself didn't just appear to Paul on the road to Damascus briefly, but appeared many times to him. And we believe those three years mentioned in Galatians that he was in Arabia, he was taught by the Lord himself and brought up to speed. And what he's saying is here, whether it was secondary from sayings of Jesus that the, the 12 heard, or directly, either way, he didn't have something directly said by the Lord himself. We might call it red letter. But Paul is an apostle, and he's telling them, based on some things they said in their letter, questions they asked, here's what he says. You should not divorce her. She should not divorce him. Now, why such situations? Probably because of conversions. Here's where the difficulty lies for the modern um, interpreter and uh, believer in the Bible. When Paul wrote this to the Corinthians, he had spent a year and a half there, but people converted to Christianity was a relatively new thing. A little over two decades since Pentecost. And there was no Christendom. There was no Pope. There were no decades and decades. There were no uh, wars fought because a certain king wanted to divorce. The Pope wouldn't let him get it. Have you, I don't know how much you know about history. But the church became a geopolitical entity that had no resemblance to the church that Paul's writing to. So we have all kinds of questions in our mind that come out of Christendom that did not exist when Paul wrote. And so what happened was there, were, there was no, you know, second Baptist down the street that they could have gone to if they didn't like the one Paul was talking about. Because anyone who was a Christian had been converted during the time of the apostles, relatively short period after the death and resurrection of Christ and ascension and the pouring out of the Spirit. So these are first-generation Christians. And in Corinth or anywhere else, when the gospel comes in, a person's converted. It might be a wife, might be a husband, or maybe both, as Cola Priscilla. We see that in Acts. And the question evidently arose from their letter that, well, now what's the deal? We were a pagan couple. One's converted, the other's not. The Christians are likely asking Paul, am I now defiled because I'm married to an unbeliever? Paul's answer is no. We'll get to that in the next verse. I think it's the next one. Did I speak out of turn? I didn't. I had it right. 
Now, uh, they had concerns about what was right and what wasn't, and there was definitely a lot of confusion going on at this church. And so Paul is going to state in the bigger picture, no, your wife and or your husband is not defiling you by being in the marriage as you should be. Do not divorce. On the contrary, you're having an influence the other way. The stronger influence is that of the Christian. We'll see that in the next verse. So let me, again, cite some, uh, well, I'll say it this way. I'm going to cite me, and then I'm going to cite scholars. Whether I count, well, you can decide. Um, me, here's what I have to say. Divorce is a fee me, and it means dismiss, release, or send away. In fact, can be used for forgiveness of sins. Released from sin. So this would be release. All right, you're released. You can go. And so a me in a legal sense, it means divorce, as translated here. <clears throat> Each usage is imperative, not divorce. Her, then, not divorce him. Applies to the Christian husband or the Christian wife. When one spouse is converted, he or she, as the case may be, must not divorce the unbelieving spouse. Some scholars think that this is con- that this confused church may have applied their slogan of seven one to being married to a non-Christian. Again, let me cite Camp and Rosner. Religiously mixed marriages, they say, represent a serious problem in the ancient world, where household solidarity and male headship were assumed. And then they cite some extra-biblical, this is my parentheses, they cite extra-biblical pagan and Jewish material about this, which decried defilement. Right, the man's the head, household solidarity. You're on the wrong side of this. You're out. That's not how it's going to be with the church. Continuing with Camp and Rosner, in this light, it's not surprising that some believers in Corinth were wondering whether to continue in their marriages to non-Christian partners. The problem had been caused by the intrusion of the gospel. As Paul will show, in fact, it's not a problem, it's a blessing that Christianity has come into a marriage. And it's seen as a positive, a blessed thing. So we'll go to the next slide and we'll see the why of this. 1 Corinthians seven, fourteen. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, this, as you can imagine, can really create a lot of speculation. It can create a lot of false doctrine if taken wrongly. There are people who have taught household salvation. 
One person saved, corporate solidarity, the whole household is saved. That's not what's being taught. And it's pretty clear that it's not being taught. Because, uh, and I have on my slide here, in this case, holy does not mean saved. Why would you say that? Well, because we're saved by grace through faith. The unbelieving spouse isn't saved. If the unbelieving spouse was saved because of being in a Christian marriage, you wouldn't have a problem. You just have a Christian family. But it is a problem to be addressed in the way that it is. So this is not teaching uh, secondary sanctification for a person uh, in, a, in a full sense for a person who doesn't know the Lord. The, what is being said is that the believing spouse is not defiled while the unbelieving spouse is in a better place. Um, this We need to be kind and gracious. And let me here interject again. Christendom has made this so muddy and confused and the category so blurred it's difficult to even preach about it. Let me give you an example. It's in my mind now. Wherever I have it in my notes, I'm going to say it right now. There are many, many cases in which a, a man and a woman grow up in church, get engaged in church, get married in church, and neither one of them are born of God. Neither one of them are truly redeemed by the blood. They're Christians in name only. And this situation in which one's converted and the other isn't happens to people who are Christians married in a church. How can that be? Paul isn't talking about that because they didn't have a church to go get married in back when. How many people in various versions of Christianity are married in the church, and one of them becomes saved. People, as I've said many times, Christendom is a mission field. You're in a Roman Catholic church many, many generations, and you come to Christ, you probably created this situation right here we're talking about. Or it could be Luther, it could be Episcopal, it could be Pentecostal, it could be Baptist, it could be Methodist, it could be anything. Christendom is not biblical Christianity. You go down the aisle, the robe, all the money spent and the fancy honeymoon and everything else, a couple, take vows, all this stuff. In many cases, both of them are lost and do not know the Lord. Has anybody ever seen that happen? It's constant. Now, the point is, we have to take that into our consideration when we're trying to apply this because there's always churches everywhere there's church for everything whatever you may want whatever uh, external appearance you would like there's a church out there anything everything or nothing you can be a neo-pagan nature worshiper and go to church doesn't mean you're born of God. Doesn't mean you're sanctified. Doesn't mean your sins are forgiven. So let's put that in our minds. So here, what's holy is the fact that a born-again Christian is part of this family. And that 
reality will have an influence that's beneficial in more of a common grace sort of way. So let, let me make some of these statements that I have on my notes. I had to make sure I had the right glasses on because the print is so tiny. So my eyesight is due to technology, not genetics. Staying in a marriage is not salvation itself, but the hope for outcome, that is, for the unbelieving spouse. It is also a testimony to the reality of Christian love and graciousness. Christians, two unbelievers, one comes to Christ, divorcing the other one would be a really bad testimony. And Paul is talking about that. The key issue is the meaning of hagiadzo. This is still my statement. Perfect passive indicative, used twice. And it doesn't carry the usual meaning, because if it did, it would mean salvation and holiness. 1 Corinthians 6.11 says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, there's a word, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's the normal technical meaning of holy. Here it's used in a different sense. Children growing up in a Christian home are not holy in the technical sense just because they grew up in a Christian home. Uh, a person whose spouse is converted isn't holy just because their spouse was converted. That sort of holiness is from the heart, and it's the cleansing of the blood of Jesus Christ. But in a common, sense, common grace sense, the household is better off for having the salt and light and prayers of a born-again Christian in the household. It's always better. That's what Paul's saying. A better place. Dr. Thistle uh, explains the key issue for them, what he thinks it is. The key controlling principle lies in the recognition of the nature of the anxiety Paul wishes, seeks to allay, says Thistleton. The believer asked Paul with genuine concern, if I've left behind the old life and become a new creation in Christ, does not my relation with my unbelieving, unrepentant spouse and my entire home atmosphere threaten to pollute and to corrode my purity as one who belongs to Christ? Question. Paul has argued readily uh, enough that relations with a pagan prostitute tear apart the limbs of Christ, 6, 12 through 20. But here he says, how could someone who has been purchased by Christ belong to him, who is the Spirit's holy shrine, belong to a spouse who does not belong to Christ? Well, the point is, marriage is ordained by God, and so you're not polluted, whereas the pagan shrines are pagan, and they do pollute. Marriage is holy. Marriage is from God. Um, Dr. Fee, I'll just mention this so you know where to look if you want to study more. He sees Romans 11 as analogous to the use of holy here. The Israel holy, although most were unbelieving, they're holy in the sense of being the recipients of promises. Romans 11, you can look there. 
Concerning children, concerning children, Dr. Thistleton says the aspects of dynamic action and separateness, separateness in Hagia, that's the word for holy, mean that even if only one parent is a Christian, the children will be marked by an elder element of shaping and difference from a holy pagan environment. Eric's talking about wisdom, the fear of God in Sunday school in Proverbs. One Christian in the home is going to make a difference for the whole family. And at the very least, that one Christian will look at what's going on in the education system and see danger. And I, be I believe that we're all well, well aware of that and want the child, child or children to have a Christian influence in Christian teaching. Does Christian teaching make everyone Christian? No. Does going to a Christian school means when you grow up you're a Christian? No. Is going to church and Sunday school mean when you grow up you're a Christian? No. Is going to Christian missions, uh, like teen missions is one that uh, one of our kids went to, does that make you a Christian? No. The only thing that makes a Christian is belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, turning to him alone, believing the gospel, having your sins cleansed, averting God's wrath against sin, being made right with him. That makes Christians. Amen. And I would go further and say settling for being Christianized is worse. Because now you have the external appearance, and that's all you have. If you understand that that's all that's there, yes, Christian education. But don't substitute it for conversion. Make, we got to get the categories right. That's what he's saying here. This is good, holy, but not in the technical sense of holy before God. Well, one more scholar. Boy, I will, whatever the apps are, if I don't get to them today, I promise to preach on them someday. Garland, Dr. Garland, how is this sanctification effected? Paul is not thinking of some magical process, says Garland. Nor does he believe that holiness can be transferred to another as in the manner of an infectious disease. The idea hinges on the two becoming one flesh, Genesis 2.24, cited in 1 Corinthians 6.16, and on God's blessing on, of marriage. Paul, says Garland, is not arguing for sanctification by proxy. Anybody here believe in sanctification by proxy? No. We need it one by one. Back to the citation. But making an argument against divorce. His basic argument is this. Mixed marriages have the same status as a Christian marriage. It should not be abandoned. Continuing the marriage accords with God's design for marriage. And it should be hallowed as a sphere in which God's holiness and transforming power operate. Unquote. Dr. Garland in his commentary, I believe his is in Zondervan exegetical commentary. Verse 15. Verse 15. 
Yet, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Yet again, controversial verse, disputed disputed meaning, many debates, discussions throughout church history. So let's tackle it. Under bondage is an unusual word. Bound, uh, bound, binding and loosing is deo and luo, but here is dulao, which means as being under servitude, bondage. So I have a statement about that. Let me first state the question. Does this mean that if one's abandoned by an unbelieving spouse, the person is free to remarry? That's the question that comes up. Here's my statement. This does not imply that marriage is bondage, since Paul describes the estate of marriage in terms of love and blessing in Ephesians 5, 22 through 23. So that's not a valid implication. I know the guys at the pool hall may talk about the wife as the old ball of chain. Not appropriate. Okay. And uh, not that I've been to the pool hall since I was a teenager down in Iowa, but the point is that's not appropriate. It's not bondage. Okay, let's go on. I probably shouldn't have said that. Which implies, uh, at least it means that the abandoned spouse is not bound to the marriage. Whether this implies freedom to remarry is debated. Yes, it is. Today's situation, given the reality of centuries of Christendom, this is my statement, many Christian marriages are marriages that happen in a church, whatever that church may believe. I've already mentioned that. So you have Christianized rather than converted. Let me uh, say this also from the statement I wrote here. There are church settings which endorse nearly everything imaginable, including slightly varnished paganism. It is impossible to create a system of spiritual case law that covers everything that arises. There is no divorce and remarriage Talmud for Christians. Halakha is oral law, Talmud is written case law. People have tried to compile them to cover everything that may have ever happened. It can't be done. Reality is too complex. The difficulties are too many. And I certainly would not try to tackle that. Some of the scholars see here meaning freedom to marry, to remarry. Only in the Lord, others... Like a fee is kind of negative on that one. Doesn't hold the same position as some of the others. And he doubts whether remarriage is in view here or even discussed. I can't solve the problem. I'd rather focus on now and the past. Now, who we are in Christ. Whatever is past is under the blood. We look forward. One thing that people agree on is this. The thing that was the bane of Roman society, and it certainly can be so in ours, if not worse, is the idea of marriage means that one or the other partner is disposable. 
As soon as somebody looks for the opportunity for upgrade, boom, spouse gone, find somebody better. And some scandals have happened with church leaders who've gone through one wife after another after another, upgrading as they go. And I, I don't say that to be sanctimonious, because by, by the grace of God, there goes everyone. But I'm saying we need to hold on to what we have and take marriage to be holy, make it something that's important and dear to our hearts, cleave to the Lord, cleave to one another. And if you're single, cleave to the Lord, put everything in his hands, and don't allow the pagan culture to determine the beliefs and practices of the church. That's the statement that we need, and I think we need to hang on to that. I'm not here to judge anybody about what has already happened. Let's hang on to the Lord. And it says, God has called us to peace. Peace first with God. Peace with God. Secondly, peace in a secondary sense with those with whom we fellowship and have to do whatever it may be. In this case, uh, someone's married to someone who's not a Christian, God's called us to peace. Someone is single, God's called us to peace. A married couple in Christ, God's called us to peace. And it takes a miracle of God's grace to walk in that peace. Ah, verse 16. I see the apse on the horizon. I think we might get there. 1 Corinthians seven sixteen. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, again, obviously, this is used using the term save in an analogous sense, not in a total literal sense. I mean by this, only God can save anybody. The point is, how do you know, wife, whether God will use you to bring salvation to your unbelieving husband? How do you, how do you know, husband, whether God will use you as a means to bring salvation to your wife? It's always better for anyone in any situation, in any church, any family, any marriage, to stand firm, get grace from God, trust him, and be someone that God can use and will use to bring something beneficial to those around us. We can all strive for that. And we need God to to help us. Now, why do I have here, are these questions optimistic or pessimistic? These are rhetorical, but... Some say Paul is uh, almost saying, do you think you can do this in a pessimistic sense? I don't think that's the sense here. I believe it's optimistic. Though the, the outcome is in God's hands. But sacrifice in hope of winning others is essential even with an uncertain outcome. In other words, we can't say... I'll stick with this, but I need a guarantee that it's going to result in salvation for this person. Well, if that was the case, no one would ever raise kids. 
Are you hearing me? <clears throat> the certainty that some people are looking for doesn't exist because God's providential will is not re- revealed. We don't know who will be saved. But we do know the role that God has given Christians, and that be, is to be witnesses for the gospel. And another thing that's essential to this is an eternal perspective that the eternal is more profound, more weighty than the temporal. And no one in eternity will regret that they went through hardship now for something that's of eternal value. I I see we have time. We'll cover that when Paul's thorn in the flesh. We're not out anything by being faithful to God in a difficult situation because God is using us and God will use us. Sacrifice and hope of winning others is essential even with uncertain outcome. We don't have time to read. We'll get to to, uh, 9, 19 through 22. I'll get to that eventually, preaching through Corinthians. But it's... And so that says, Paul says, he becomes all thing to all people that he might win some. Doesn't mean he compromised, but he avoided needless offense. See, we can't live for the pleasures of this world and think that that's going to result in something good for anybody. It doesn't. We got to live for Christ. Two points here of application. Life in this fallen world is filled with difficulties, sorrows, and irresolvable problems. We need grace. Talk about stating the obvious. At least it's obvious to people that know the Bible. Number two, in Adam all die, but Christ brings hope and resurrection life to those who believe. On that first point, we'll go to 2 Corinthians 12, 9. In our podcast for critical issues, Jessica and I have, I don't know when they get out there, whether they've been broadcast yet, but we, we covered the section of Paul's thorn in the flesh in the, in the context of people claiming they visited heaven. And we're saying, no, they didn't visit heaven. And... Uh, If they did, they certainly wouldn't be talking about it. Paul didn't. The point of it was Paul um, had a thorn in the flesh, and the answer when he saw it three times for its removal was grace is sufficient. Let me read it, 2 Corinthians 12.9. And he has said to me, quote, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness, unquote. That's what the Lord said. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And in our podcast, we point out it's ironic that the the apostles and prophets and revelators and great people of God, they all visited heaven. That has to be on the resume or you won't get speaking engagements. But ironically, Paul, who talks in the second or third person, not wanting to boast, what he said about having 
been to the third heaven, probably, was weaknesses and thorn and misery. His status was weakness. The status of the false teachers is they're better than ordinary Christians because they've been to heaven. And so don't listen to them. Now, what about this thorn? This is what we want to focus on. My grace is sufficient for you. Power is perfected in weakness. As we look at our situations, whether it's our children or grandchildren or spouses or extended family or life in the fallen world we live in at work, uh, just living in this wicked world is more grievous all the time. And whatever we believe that's important, the world hates it and throws it back at us. And if a Christian believes the truth placed in the Bible, we're considered to be fools and offensive and someone that shouldn't even be listened to. And so that's a very difficult situation. We're living in it. Whatever your situation, mine, anyone's, this is a statement that's true for all. My grace is sufficient for you. Power is perfected in weakness. Many people go through bad, horrible, tragic, sorrowful, irresolvable situations. But not everybody does so graciously. And when we do, we speak volumes about God, who he is, and what he's done, and that he's a gracious and powerful and merciful God. And I pray that we would have that just driven into our hearts, that God has grace. Hebrews 4, 16. What do you do when you're in a situation you can't do one thing about? Hebrews 4, 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace Grace to help in time of need, and the Greek there indicates timely help, just in time, just what we need. It may not be the answer we're looking for, but it's the one we need. It doesn't mean we hear a voice from heaven. It means we know what's right, and we stick with it, and we believe it. Uh, we have access to God. We have access to the throne of grace. Ephesians 2.18, for through him we both, that is Jews and Gentiles, who are converted have access in one spirit to the Father. We have access to God. You don't have to visit heaven. You need to believe the promises of God and go to God. Sometimes we, the most basic thing to pray is the first thing we forget. We're looking for a solution. Sometimes the solution comes in a form that if we took it, it would be sinful. We can't do that. We need to go to God. One last thing. This one is a big worldview issue right here. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22. For as a man, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, the reality of the fall capital F, fall, is not considered by the pagan world and is not even taken seriously by most of the church world. There is an unspoken sometimes assumption 
that if we did everything right, had all the right answers, made all the right decisions, took all the right actions, paradise would be developing right here, right now. But those who are looking for paradise are the very ones who create hell on earth. Because if you try to make a fallen world into paradise, you will make it worse, not better. And that's exactly what we see anywhere, everywhere. Wrote a book about it on the emergent church. They claim that everything's evolving into future paradise without future judgment. We just need to follow the red letters and believe certain panentheistic philosophies and it'll all get better. That is a lie. The world has fallen. The whole world is alienated from God. Adam and Eve, they sinned. What happened? Cain killed Abel. It didn't take long for family problems to show up. Do you think they've gotten better in the last so many thousands of years? No, we still have the same problems. The gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. The, the creator, the eternal one, the non-contingent creator of the universe, God the Son, second person of the Trinity, came into our world. He lived a sinless life. He died for sin. He shed his blood. He bore the full measure of God's wrath against sin on the behalf of all who believe. He was raised from the dead, vindicating his claims and who he is and his promises. He ascended into heaven. We talked about the throne of grace. See at the right hand of God. He's coming again. Today, the promise is believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Trust in him. Don't trust in self. Don't trust in philosophy. Don't trust in the world. Don't trust in processes. Trust in Christ. Only Christ can bring true holiness into anyone's life. And he does so by a work of grace when we trust in him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to look into difficult things. And we pray that as we do, we are gracious with one another as we seek grace from you to live lives that would be pleasing to you. And we do pray for the family members who are hurting and straying as many have that situation, may we act and live redemptively by your grace. And may we be uh, those who preach the gospel to the people around us and to stand firm. And I pray for every person here that each one would have grace to live a holy and godly life before you in whatever situation we're in. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.